Welcome to the Precision Guided Podcast, the official podcast of the Georgetown Security Studies Review, where we cover all things national security, military, foreign policy, and history. Thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Iku. Today's guest is Dr. Jerry Newt Mathis to talk about Chinese renewable energy. China is dominating the renewable energy market by exporting solar PV, wind turbines, and energy storage equipment, all expected to be worth $100 billion in 2022. China makes up 30% of the global renewable energy market now. China made up 89% of extra EU imports of solar panels in 2021. China and India were the origins of almost all imports of wind turbines in 2021. The United Kingdom, which consisted of 42%, was the largest extra EU export destination for wind turbines, followed by the United States and Taiwan. The United States, which was 23%, was the largest extra EU export destination for solar panels, followed by Singapore, 19%. The United Kingdom and Switzerland both consisted of 9%. The global effort for going green is creating dependency on Chinese renewable energy. Ironically, the efforts for environmental security may create a huge national security threat for the United States, the EU, and the Western allies. On the other hand, the Chinese dependency on petroleum and coal is significant. China's reliance on coal is up to 55% and petroleum at 19%. China attempting to replace coal is increasing its import of liquefied natural gas, which is called the LNG. Its expected import will be above 15% by 2030. In 2021, China surpassed Japan and already became the largest importer of LNG. The main LNG suppliers for China are Australia and the United States. In 2023, Chinese import of LNG is expected to grow even more. This power dynamic between China and the Western countries on environmental security begs us to wonder a set of questions on going green. Today, I have invited Dr. Jeremy Mathis to discuss topics on implications surrounding the global movement on going green. Thank you very much for having me. Great. Let me start off with the first question. Currently, the United States and other Western allies rely heavily on Chinese renewable energy technologies. While the aim to achieve carbon neutrality is a crucial step to protecting the environment, dependency on Chinese energy creates a security dilemma for the Western allies. Should the allies still prioritize environmentally friendly energy despite having to rely on China? And are there any other alternatives for the United States and others to achieve carbon neutrality without China? Well, that's a great question, and there's a lot to unpack there. So I would say, first and foremost, uh, is yes, in a globalized world, we want to take advantage of supply chains and where things can be manufactured in the most cost-effective way possible. We're always trying to look for opportunities to bring down the cost of renewable energy and green energy technology. 
So I think it it's great that we have a global supply chain when it comes to uh, our green energy resources, and we should continue to find ways to strengthen that global supply chain. Now, having said that, I do think there is an inherent risk on relying on a single point of manufacturing for a lot of the core green technologies. And we've seen that emerge in China as they have cornered larger and larger shares of this market, mainly through their national investment that they have made. The the Chinese government has uh, heavily invested in the green technology sector uh, in the hopes of eliminating competition in places like the United States and Western Europe. And they have been very successful in doing that. And I think it now presents a very unique challenge to the U.S. uh, and our traditional allies. So I would love to see, much like we did with the CHIPS Act uh, a few months ago, of seeing the U.S. invest in a Green Energy Act, where we're able to incentivize businesses in the U.S. uh, to not only invest in green tech, but also invest in the manufacturing capacity to build those green technologies so that we're not just solely reliant on China to deliver those products to us. And, you know, I I think the real danger is that, you know, beyond just our energy security is the commitment that we see U.S. businesses making to decarbonizing uh, their business lines and how necessary it will be to have access to cheap, reliable sources of green technology in order for our companies to meet their pledges, whether it's net zero or whether it's a commitment to sustainability or however we're framing now this conversation around being more responsible when it comes to the environment. We don't want those goals to be tied to a a single point of supply, and in this case, China. Yeah, I think the Green Energy Act is definitely a necessary starting point for the United States. I'm going to be moving on to my second question, which is, if the Chinese are already exceeding in the technology race for renewable energy, has the West already lost the game for dominance on going green? No, I don't think that's the case at all. And, you know, I'll I'll say something that's a bit provocative, but uh, most of the R&D for that green technology was done in the West and then was then taken by China and applied using their, you know, great manufacturing capabilities. So I think the United States and uh, our European colleagues and and even in countries like Australia uh, are still leading in the green tech development What we need to be able to do is lead in the manufacturer space of that industry as well is it's great to develop the technology, but watching China commercialize and flood the global markets with the technology that we have developed predominantly in the United States and Europe is is something that's very disconcerting. So no, I I don't think we've ceded the, the intellectual high ground to them in the technology development for renewable energy. But we need to make sure we're making investments at the the national level to make sure we maintain our competitive edge when it comes to our great research and development capabilities. Interesting. So you're saying that the United States or the West hasn't lost because the technology is originally from the West, but the Chinese are really good at producing them. That's exactly right. Right. 
So my next question is, is it likely for China to achieve carbon neutrality by 2050 or 2060, which is ultimately Xi Jinping's goal? Honestly, the answer to that question is no. The Chinese economy would have to to undergo a fundamental transformation in order for that to happen. China does a great job of talking the talk when it comes to green energy, but they don't walk the walk. They would love nothing more than to export their green technology out to other countries as the energy transition occurs. But China has really doubled down in the last decade of, of building new coal-fired power plants and importing Russian natural gas and Russian oil supplies for their domestic energy production. Because at the end of the day, those fossil fuel sources of energy are still cheaper in China than green energy production. So China's really getting the benefit of of, of both, is, is that they're still powering their manufacturing economy using very dirty energy sources while they're exporting their green tech to the rest of the world and creating economic opportunities for themselves for that. So without a fundamental change in how China prioritizes its industries and how committed the Chinese government is going to be to making this transition. I think 2050 or even 2060 is a very unlikely time horizon for China to fully decarbonize their energy. Yeah, even statistically, it says that China heavily, heavily relies on coal and petroleum 55% on coal and 19% on petroleum. And also China is attempting to replace coal and trying to go to more liquefied natural gas, which is the LNG. And I know that Chinese economy heavily relies on the conventional oil and energy. So I do agree with you that it's going to be very difficult to achieve their goal of the carbon neutrality goal, but also at the same time, maintaining the economic power that China has been always talking about. And it's been such an important goal for them to keep growing, even including the BRI and the effort to have the global economic dominance over a lot of countries. I think these are very two difficult goals to achieve at the same time for China. Absolutely. And I think there's some strategic interest as well. We've seen this alignment between Russia and China over the last decade over energy. Is that Russia needs a buyer for the energy that they're producing, especially in the Arctic, now that the Arctic is opening up? And China needs a reliable energy provider that they can they keep the, the energy prices as low as they possibly can. So there's mutual incentives for both Russia and China continue down this pathway of, of fossil fuel energy. And China needs to, to be called out for the fact that uh, they are exporting all this green tech to the world and, and trying to own that market. While at the same time, you know, their domestic energy policies are are not sustainable in any way from a climate perspective. Hmm. So my follow up question would be, so is there a way for the international community to kind of call out China on that regard? Yeah, I think we're going to have to apply carbon taxes. And countries are going to have to pay for their carbon emissions. Then, and, and we're going to see that in the form of tariffs. Uh, and import taxes that level the playing field, uh, that if the United States and and Europe are going to decarbonize our manufacturing base at considerable expense, then it's not fair 
if China doesn't do that decarbonization and is able to continue to surge products into the global marketplace. So I think we would have to hold China accountable for their continued emissions. China has made some big pledges during the Paris Climate Agreement and the subsequent COPs that have followed after that. China has you know, provided rhetoric that says that they want to meet these goals, but until they start doing it, I think it's going to be up to the international community to hold them accountable economically and not let them play at an unfair advantage when U.S. industry and, and Western European industry is actively investing to decarbonize their processes and supply chains. So I know in our class, environmental security class, we've also talked about uh, regional efforts versus global efforts. And I think one of the interesting developments that's happening in Asia is that there's more regional efforts starting in Asia. And since China is in Asia, I think one of the interesting regional power to look at now is the Quad. And there's been interesting developments around Quad in terms of also energy cooperation. I know the Australia is more interested in going green, but Australia has been, you know, strong country for exporting LNG historically. So shouldn't Australia and the United States take advantage of the fact that they are the biggest exporters of LNG, which is what the Chinese desperately require for several reasons? For the Australians and for the Americans, it's advantage because it could prevent them from turning to other non-Western allies for LNG sources. Second, to create Chinese dependency on the West to deter them from causing problems that would risk losing Australia and the United States as the LNG exporters, or at least create difficulties unless they find a replacement that would fill the gap, which would be difficult. So my short answer to your very good question is that, yes, in the short term, we should do everything we can to use liquefied natural gas as a bridge to move away from coal. That if, if you have a choice between using coal to generate electricity and using liquid natural gas, there, there's no comparison to the environmental impact. So, yes, I, I think on the one hand, countries like Australia and Qatar and the United States should do everything possible uh, to encourage and incentivize China to move away from coal burning power plants and, and move to natural gas burning power plants. The caveat to that is, is right now, China is using their leverage over Russia to extract you know, really Chinese favorable energy deals out of Russia. And that is the, the natural gas that's flowing in. So they're again, they're getting the best of both worlds. They're not actually, you know, making big commitments to, to reducing their emissions, and they're getting the cheap energy out of the process as well. So the, the United States and, and Australia don't have this great Chinese market to, to sell LNG into because China has, you know, almost unlimited amounts of natural gas that it can get from Russia at discounted prices because of the leverage that, that China has over Russia right now for, you know, a number of reasons. So yes, I think in the next decade, we should do everything possible in the West to incentivize a transition completely away from coal towards natural gas as a bridge energy source 
until the renewables and whether, you know, it be hydrogen or nuclear or enhanced batteries that allow us to, to better store solar and wind energy until those technologies are, are a little further developed, natural gas does present a, a nice bridge that would at, at least start to bring down some of the emissions that we see from coal. So is there a way for the Australians and the Americans to kind of take advantage of this situation and make it difficult for China to invade Taiwan due to the fact that China has energy issues? Well, that's a that's a difficult question. I think very carefully about sanctioning energy and and limiting countries' energy supplies. One of the major drivers for Japan attacking Pearl Harbor, you know, during World War II was because the United States had put an oil embargo on Japan. I wouldn't want to inflame the situation anymore and, and threaten China's energy supplies. But I would definitely go for the carrot approach, right? That if, if we think about the carrot and the stick, at this phase, I, I don't think we should use the stick. We should figure out those incentives to help China transition its economy to more sustainable energy supplies. And when appropriate, I think we could add tariffs or add taxes onto Chinese manufactured goods that are either using very dirty coal to produce them or significantly subsidized energy supplies from Russia that are are not only hurting the international community, but creating an unfair advantage for Chinese manufacturing compared to United States or, or European competitors. Yeah, I think you mentioned about Pearl Harbor, and which is an interesting comparison, because I agree that energy has always been a very big topic for every country. And just like you said, the Japanese were incentivized to attack Pearl Harbor and felt like they had no other ways because of the oil embargo. So I think it's definitely not the ideal to drive Chinese to the corner and then feel like they have nothing else or no other means to achieve their goals. So I think that's a very interesting perspective because I think every security expert tends to think, you know, what can we do? That's right. And, and it's, you know, it's the law of unintended consequences. I think threatening Chinese energy supplies makes it more likely to, for them to invade Taiwan, not less likely. So when you think about, we'll limit their fuel supplies so that they can't, you know, stage a large scale military invasion. Well, by doing that, you may precipitate the very event that you're trying to avoid. So I will let the uh, the people that are a lot smarter than me figure out the right policy for that. But I, I am very careful at this stage about thinking about threatening Chinese energy supplies. Thank you so much. And my last question is, overall, are there ways for the West to pursue environmental security while taking advantage of it? to win the great power competition with China? For example, not just energy security, but maybe food security, environmental security in general. Yes, absolutely. I think the first and foremost that the United States and Western Europe needs to lead by example. We need to, to transition our economies as, as quickly and efficiently as we can towards things that are more sustainable, not just energy, but as you mentioned, food security, our water security, we need to do a better, much better job of managing our water supplies here in the United States so that 
we can then share those ideas and and share our progress that we've made on water management with the rest of the world that's going to struggle with those same challenges. So yes, I I think it's it is incumbent upon us uh, to make the investments to to get our house in order when it comes to you know green energy conservation when it comes to fresh water and then management of resources in the long term so that we can then help Central Asia and Africa and South America and Central America all the regions that we talk about in class are going to struggle with this environmental security transition that is already underway, we can develop the strategies uh, in in the United States that can help those countries weather uh, the challenges that are that are coming. Yeah, that's an interesting point about water security. And it would be great for the United States if the United States can build these technologies and, of course, protect the technology, patent it, and export these technologies and become the world leader as it should be to show the world green energy can be or going green can be without the risk of relying always on China or Russian conventional energy. So that's an interesting point. Yeah, so actually, these are all the questions I've had. Or is there any final point that you would like to make for this podcast? Well, first and foremost, I want to thank you for inviting me to do this and just challenge your listeners to think about environmental security and everything that they do. That as we see time and time again, the destabilizations that are going to happen because of environmental change are going to be a conflict multiplier around the world in any number of ways. So I think we all need to be thinking about it. And we all need to be thinking about those solutions for how we can incentivize this transition to more sustainable economies and and more sustainable life, sustainable lifestyles is, is something that we all need to do. Yes, I agree. When we are looking at wars, we only tend to focus on weapons, military, But we always forget about the consequences that happens on the environment. But also, we forget that some of the causes that trigger these wars are environment itself, clean water, people are always fighting for land, border disputes that happens everywhere is also environment. And people are always looking for more food. And with the growing population in the world, it has been growingly just difficult Um to look at the war without separating the environmental causes to this. That's exactly right. And and I talked to a, a colleague in Israel yesterday, and, and he said something very interesting, that, that even after they get past this current crisis that they're in, they've still got a water crisis and a climate crisis to deal with. And that we have to keep in mind that the regional conflict and regional instability that we're going to start seeing is going to be both impacting the environment, but also is going to be driven by the environment. So as security professionals, we have to start thinking about integrating that into the strategic planning that we have, because climate change is going to affect us all. So the traditional security issues that we've experienced are still going to be going on in the background, but we can't lose sight of the fact that that climate change and, and environmental disruptions are going to be hanging over all of us. And the, the sooner we can start working together to solve those things, uh, the, the faster we'll get to some meaningful solutions. 
we hope the GSSR podcast team can push and challenge our listeners to focus more and more on the environmental and energy implications of these wars and as future security professions. We hope to be able to think about every causes and then think about everything that affects our world. Well, it's great. I'm very proud of you for taking this on and and for your thought leadership in this. So thank you again for having me. And it's always a pleasure to talk to an, an SSP student. Thank you so much. As a reminder, the views expressed on this podcast are the views of the participants alone and do not represent the views or opinions of Georgetown University, the Precision Guided Podcast, or any other agency. Thank you for listening to the Precision Guided Podcast. Follow the Georgetown Security Studies Review on social media to stay up to date on the latest Precision Guided Podcast episodes and GSSR content. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, or you can visit our website at georgetownsecuritystudiesreview.org. Thank you to all our listeners out there. This is the Precision Guided Podcast, the official podcast of the Georgetown Security Studies Review.